Chapter Fourteen of Gargoyles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Gargoyles by Ben Hecht. Chapter Fourteen. Fanny listened carelessly to her husband. After eight years, listening to what Aubrey had to say had become unnecessary, because his talk never changed. What he said yesterday he would say tomorrow. He prided himself on this. He explained that it revealed him a man of unswerving principles. Fanny, who had become a rather sarcastic person, kept her answer to herself. A man of unswerving principles was a great asset to the community, but a terrible bore to his home. She sat watching Henrietta sew. There was a placidity about Henrietta that always irritated her. Henrietta was still pretty, although beginning to fade. Her eyes were colorless and her lips were getting thinner, but she seemed happy and Fanny wondered about this. Mr. McKay seemed very attentive to Henrietta. Of course, Mr. McKay was Aubrey's partner and a friend of her brother, George. But it was odd to call on Henrietta unexpectedly and find her talking alone to a man in her library, even to Mr. McKay. Fanny was suspicious about such things. She had been utterly faithful to Aubrey during their married life, and this fidelity, somehow, had developed in her an attitude of chronic suspicion concerning the fidelity of other women. It was her habit, when visiting her friends, to sit and speculate upon their possible immoralities. She had frequently got herself into trouble by setting scandalous rumors afloat. "'Henry Thorpe and Gwendolyn see quite a great deal of each other,' she would say. "'More than we know, I think. I wonder what Mrs. Thorpe thinks about it. You know Gwendolyn, for all her pretenses, is an out-and-out -out sensual type.' No one was immune from Fanny's speculations. In fact, the more incongruous the idea of any one's sinfulness seemed, the more enthusiastically Fanny embraced it. She was more than half aware that thinking about others in immoral situations seemed to excite herself. She would endeavor to introduce a note of indignation into her speculations, but the note was too forced to deceive her, although it deceived others and she finally abandoned herself to the thrill which thinking evilly of others stirred in her. She would often allow her suspicions to become detailed. Merely to suspect a woman of being immoral was not as satisfying as to figure the manner of her sin, the play-by-play, word-by-word drama of her seduction. She relished such fancy details. Suspecting others of immorality enabled Fanny to enjoy vicariously situations which she had as a matter of course denied herself. Her love for Aubrey had not changed. It had, in fact, grown, or at least become inflated by habit. At the beginning of their union she had suspected him of being a hypocrite. She had immediately resented his virtue. Then, for a short time, she had figured out that he must be unfaithful to her, that this accounted for his virtue. But her resentment had remained mute. The years had proved to her, as much as proof was possible, 
that Aubrey was no hypocrite, and that his attitude toward such things was due to his being a high-minded, decent man. He loved her, but in his own way. He explained to her, Most marriages are ruined because people are led astray by sex. Sex is a duty. I don't think it's any more moral for married people to wallow in sex than it is for unmarried people. Sex has an object beyond itself which people ignore. It is a means to an end. Children. And they had gone on for eight years living up to these standards. But they had no children. Fanny was willing to acquiesce in her husband's ideals, since she had to, in everything except about children. She didn't want any. Fanny had accepted his version of the thing and lived by it. There were some rewards. She managed to derive a dubious satisfaction during their infrequent hours of passion from the knowledge that he was a famous man. She also found a source of secret excitement in his austerity and virtue. The fact that he was so high-minded and aloof from any thought of sex offered a piquant contrast to occasions when he condescended to be her lover. Such occasions were for Fanny far from austere and high-minded. She allowed the keen sensuality of her nature free reign. Aubrey's noble attitude served to inspire her with a sense of guilt, as if their relations were really as indecent and immoral as he contended sex to be, and the idea of their being indecent and immoral heightened her enjoyment of them. She wondered at many things about Aubrey. Despite his aversion to sex, she did not think of it as an aversion but as a high-mindedness, he was yet very attentive to women not in the way that most men were attentive, but chivalrously. He had become during their married life a veritable Chesterfield and Sir Raleigh. It was not only his manner, his observation of little rules of conduct such as rising when a woman entered, or helping her on with her wraps, or assisting her to pull up her chair at the table, or opening doors, or any of the thousand niceties that marked his attitude toward women. It was also his ideas. He frequently discussed women, and his point of view was more chivalrous than most men's. He said that he believed in the fineness of women, that a woman was a pure, beautiful soul, and he was quick to resent insults to women, even general insults which sought to reflect upon woman's purity as a whole or to make her out a scheming sexual animal. Fanny was proud of his chivalrous tone. It distinguished him, and she did not resent the fact that it interested women. She had never been jealous of Aubrey, and she had gradually accustomed herself to his high-mindedness. She would have liked abandoned caresses and embraces, but these had never been forthcoming, even on their honeymoon long ago and she had given up dreaming of them for herself. She dreamed about them now in connection with others, and her mind, colored by unsatisfied desires, indulged itself in the luxurious and lascivious details of her suspicions of others. She sat watching Henrietta as Mr. McKay talked to her, and despite an effort to control her thought, 
she began to wonder what they had been doing alone in the apartment before she and Aubrey came. He had probably taken her hand and pulled her to him, put his arms around her, and Henrietta, overcome with a sudden passion, had probably flung her arms about his shoulders and given him her lips wildly. And just as they were standing deliriously embraced like that, the bell had probably rung and Henrietta had jumped away and grabbed her sewing. She had come to the door with her sewing in her hand and... Fanny smiled at the colorless and unsuspecting Henrietta. Her sense of humor had done for her what her sense of justice had failed to do. It controlled her fancies. To imagine Henrietta giving her lips wildly to anybody, particularly the red-faced Mr. McKay, was ludicrous. Poor Henrietta with her two noisy children and her interminable sewing. She didn't envy her the children. Thank heaven, despite Aubrey's high-minded attitude toward sex as a distasteful mechanism through which the race continued itself, they had had no children. There was something pitiful about Henrietta. She was so dumb. And even when she dressed up and powdered and frilled, she always seemed tired. A stranger might think she was an invalid just recovered from some serious illness. Henrietta was probably like Aubrey about those things, very high-minded and aloof. Mr. McKay and Aubrey were talking about advertising now. They always did this sooner or late, and they usually quarreled because Aubrey was inclined to insist that his end of the business the preparation of copy and ad material, was as important as Mr. McKay's end. Mr. McKay was in charge of the salesman. She hadn't wanted to call on her brother, but Aubrey insisted. There was a deal on. The city was going to do a lot of advertising, and the firm of McKay Gilchrist wanted the job. Bazine could help them pull wires. The bell rang and interrupted their talk. "'That must be George!' Henrietta exclaimed. She grew nervous and began to flutter. The maid was out for the afternoon, and she went to the door herself. A strange voice came from the hall as the door opened. "'Oh, come right in. George isn't home, but I expect him any minute,' Henrietta greeted the arrival. Paul Schroeder, one of the attorneys who worked in the mysterious place called the state attorney's office with her husband, entered. He was younger than her husband and a type she disliked. She didn't like George to have him as a friend. He was too brutal-looking and too noisy. Her submission to George had developed a keen set of prejudices in her. She liked only people who reminded her of her husband normal-sized, thin men with aristocratic manners and quick, nervous eyes. And what she liked in such people was only the parts of them that seemed like George. All other kinds of men annoyed her, particularly the kind Schroeder was, rough, coarse, and laughing too loudly always. She thought of him as a vulgar animal, and once or twice hinted to George that she didn't like to have him visit the house. Schroeder entered, his blond, well-shaped head tossing dramatically. The exuberance of his manner gave him the air of being larger than he was. 
Aubrey Gilchrist, when he straightened up, was taller than Schroeder, and Mr. McKay's shoulders were broader. But somehow the blond-headed man dwarfed them both as he shook hands with them. He sat down next to Fanny. "'Well,' he said to her, "'how you been? Bright-eyed as ever?' He laughed, and Fanny smiled. "'What's the matter with friend-husband?' he turned to Henrietta. "'Can't you keep his knobs home like a God-fearing man on Sundays?' Henrietta winced. "'He went to see his sister, who is ill,' she said. "'He'll be back any minute.' "'Oh, that's all right,' Schroeder answered, as if Henrietta had apologized and he was forgiving her. Then to Aubrey he added, "'What are you two pirates after from Basine?' Aubrey raised his eyebrows. He was subject to quick dislikes. Schroeder was one of them. Schroeder was the kind of person who had no respect for merit or his superiors. The world, unfortunately, was full of such people, bores lacking the intelligence to perceive their betters. Aubrey always felt ill at ease in their presence. Although he had written no novels for five years, in his own mind he was still a literary figure of importance. He had gone into the advertising business, but not permanently. He had intended, at first, remaining in it only for a year, and then returning to his writing. He wanted to do a different sort of writing, and a vacation was necessary. He wanted to do something real. He had, as a matter of fact, lost interest in the business of turning out narratives. Worried at the time by this loss of interest in his work, he had explained it as an ambition for better things. But five years had passed, and he was still an advertising man. The firm of McKay and Gilchrist had grown. He flattered himself that its success had been due to his personal prestige. People said, Oh, that's Aubrey Gilchrist, the writer. Well, that's quite an asset for an advertising concern. And so they brought their business to McKay Gilchrist. He disliked Schroeder because on the few occasions they had met, the man had exuberantly ignored the fact he was Aubrey Gilchrist. Schroeder was a man who had no interest in anything outside himself, a noisy, self-satisfied creature, with no reason to be noisy or self-satisfied. He had never done anything. "'I don't understand what you mean, Mr. Schroeder,' Aubrey answered stiffly. "'Ho, ho!' Schroeder exclaimed. "'Your husband is insulted, Mrs. Gilchrist. "'Well, I apologize. "'There's George. "'I'll lay you dollars to donuts.' The bell had rung. Basine entered. Aubrey looked significantly at his partner. The significance was due to the fact that Schroeder seemed likely to ruin the visit. Aubrey announced aloud after the greetings, "'Thought we'd drop in for a private discussion, George.' Henrietta was smiling tenderly at her husband. "'Where have you been?' she asked. "'Well, I've got great news for you,' Basine exclaimed. The company looked hopefully at him. "'What, dear?' Oh, I'll tell you tonight, little girl. If it's good news, we'd all like to hear it, 
Fanny insisted. Schroeder regarded his friend askance. He suspected something. He had left Basine yesterday night, and there had been no hint of anything happening. And today, being Sunday, he smiled to himself. Covering up, he thought. Husbands are comical. He decided not to press Basine. He had evidently been up to something. Playing a matinee. He noticed that his friend was trying to change the subject. Is it something personal? Henrietta asked with a frown. You frighten me, George, when you don't tell me things. Basine, sitting down, beamed with enthusiasm on the group, on his home. Where are the children? he asked. Over at the Harveys, Henrietta answered. Well, said her husband with an explosive intonation, I've made up my mind to go after the circuit court. There's a chance next April. Going to run for judge, eh? Schroeder asked with interest. Yes, sir, Basine laughed. I just had a session with some of the boys this afternoon, and we discussed it. Oh, I thought you were at Doris's, Henrietta interrupted. I did see her, Basine answered, but only for a few seconds. I spent most of the afternoon in conference. Congratulations, Aubrey spoke. Mac and I were going to... Schroeder stood up. What do you say if we take a walk, Mrs. Gilchrist? He whispered loudly. Your husband insists that I get out, and I won't unless you come along. He laughed good-naturedly until Aubrey smiled and nodded to his wife. If you wish, Fanny. It's awfully nice outside, Fanny agreed after a pause during which she looked carefully out of the window. Basine reached for his wife's hand and drew her toward his chair. "'You're looking very well,' he smiled at her. A pleasant light came to her eyes. For a moment the youthfulness that people had once admired when they had called her such an enthusiastic girl returned to her manner. "'Oh, now, George!' she exclaimed. Basine felt a catch in his heart. A remorse, as if he had done something, came over him. He patted her hand tenderly. Henrietta repeated, but in an almost colorless voice, "'Oh, George!' Schroeder followed Fanny down the steps. As the door of the Basine apartment closed behind them, his fingers clutched her elbow, and he leaned against her in a straightforward, jovial manner. Her experience as a married woman had brought a directness into Fanny's mind. She no longer found it necessary to conceal her thoughts from herself. She was still inclined to be publicly innocent, but her mental life had taken on the proportions of an endless debauch. Marriage not only legalized sex, but removed the barriers to thinking about it. She felt herself blushing childishly as Schroeder, squeezing her arm, opened the door with a flourish. End of chapter 14 Recording by Roger Moline